Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into paranormal occurrences here across the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I do want to be a believer. I'm intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might just be out there. So every Wednesday, join me as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what might just be in between. I will present to you the historical facts and the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This episode takes place in a place called Lando Lakes, Wisconsin. For those of you from the United States, you probably are familiar with Land O'Lakes Butter, and this is where it originates. Just a fun fact, this was actually the first butter to be made out of sweet cream and to be formed into the sticks that we know today to use to measure for baking, cooking, and all of that. Now, Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin was not named for the butter. It was actually named because it has such a high number of lakes in the area and it is 34 to be exact. You might wonder why this is important, and it is because our story today takes place on one of those 34 lakes. The story begins with a man named John Frank. And John Frank was from Ohio, and he was a little bit of a nomad. He kind of traveled a little bit all over the states, eventually ending up as far west as Washington State before he returned to the Midwest and eventually settled in Wisconsin. John Frank and his wife, Alma, had purchased the property on West Bay Lake, which was one of those 34 lakes, and him and his wife turned their property into a homestead for them before turning it into what was called the West Bay Fishing Lodge. They opened this fishing lodge in 1912, and it consisted of the main lodge and four cabins that overlooked West Bay Lake. Per newspaper advertisements from that time, it was $5 a night to stay at one of the cabins, which today is about $140 a night, which really isn't bad for a cabin right on the water. The couple ended up running the property for years, And mostly they hosted it for people who lived in the city. So Chicago was only about a five-hour train ride. So people could come in here for a weekend, enjoy the peace and tranquility, spend some time with their family, go fishing, whatever it may be. I don't know how successful it was because they only ran it for a few years from 1912 to 1916 when John and Alma decided to sell the property. Then in 1916, it was bought by a man named Robert Patterson Lamont. He bought the lodge, the four cabins, and the 80 acres that came along with it. A little bit about Lamont is he was an executive with the steel industries. He ended up actually working in politics under President Hoover as his Secretary of Commerce for a couple years. So he had more than enough money to purchase a second summer, home, weekend, getaway kind of thing for his family, which is why he purchased this. He did not purchase the lodge as a home for the family, but again, that summer home kind of thing. It was a lodge, so it wasn't really a place where you could just move your family into and enjoy it. 
So the Le Mans actually had to have extensive renovations and expansions done to the lodge to make it a summer getaway for the family. It took about two years to turn it into the Lamont Mansion, and the family was able to begin using it in 1918. Now, in today's standards, it's not a mansion, as it was said to contain about 20 rooms, but it did include servants' quarters as well that were attached to the home, and the mansion was the first home in the area to actually feature not only electricity and running water, but also oil heat. So while it might not be a mansion for standards at that time, it really was. They also had boat docks that were attached to the property. I don't know what happened to the original four cabins that were used with the lodge. I couldn't find any mention of it anywhere. So I don't know if they used them as servants' quarters, let them be demolished, used them for extra material. I don't know. Once the family began using it, the locals started referring to the property as the Lamont Mansion. But the family itself never called it Lamont Mansion. They referred to it as Lilac Hills. And this was due to the whole property was surrounded by beautiful, huge lilac bushes. For those of you who are familiar with lilac bushes, you know how great they smell. And they grow up to be like 15 feet tall, 12 feet wide. They're just huge. And I'm sure the family was pretty pleased with this, which is why they called it Lilac Hills. After they moved in, um, using it as their, you know, summer home, the servants that the family would bring in pretty much right off the bat started reporting different occurrences happening in the house. Their main three things that they reported were they would hear voices, and they would feel an overwhelming just sense of evil, bad omen kind of juju in the house. And lastly, they reported seeing the apparition of a woman, of course, dressed in white, walking in the driveway. They don't say whether she was pacing, was she floating, what was she doing. They just always reported seeing her. But the family didn't really pay them any mind. They were just like, eh, it's the silly servants, whatever, whatever, and just went about their time. That is until the shooting occurred. And the story of this is one night the family was sitting down eating dinner in the kitchen when all of a sudden the basement door started to open. Once the basement door had creaked all the way open, they all of a sudden saw an intruder appear at the basement door. Mr. Lamont, protecting his family, fired two shots at the intruder, but as soon as he shot the intruder, he actually disappeared into thin air and both bullets lodged into the basement door. The family, for good reason, was freaked out and ended up just fleeing the home after they had used it for 15 years, and they never came back. They left their furniture they left their valuable artwork. They left everything. So this must have been a pretty crazy apparition for them to build to just flee after 15 years. The Lamonts did not sell the home, but instead they just pretty much left it vacant there to rot. And they didn't report why. They just, that was it. It stayed in the family until Mr. Lamont died in 1948. And after that time, the family chose to sell the property 
and it was bought by a family known as the Keepers. When they bought it, it was reported that they wanted to use it as a summer home and possibly eventually a bed and breakfast. The problem is it had sat empty for well over a decade. It was unlivable from the neglect and so forth. So it was going to require a lot of work. Now, it was said that not long after Mrs. and Mr. Kiefer acquired the home, that Mrs. Kiefer became very wary of the house. She didn't want to ever go inside. But the family was very quiet about things. They didn't discuss their experiences or anything. They just immediately began trying to sell it back. The problem was that it just kept falling through. Buyers would put an offer in, go to go live in it, and then their funds would fall through. So for a couple years, the keepers tried to sell it, and eventually, that's where the Hinshaws came into play. There was a woman named Virginia Hinshaw, and she went by Ginger, so for the rest of this episode, I will refer to her as Ginger Hinshaw. She had a friend who lived in the Land of Lakes area, and she was visiting her friend when her friend's like, hey, I want to show you this creepy house, which... For any of you paranormal lovers out there, you would be like, heck yeah, let's go. So her friend and her went to see the home and Ginger was just immediately drawn to the home. She thought it was just gorgeous. So she contacted her husband and her and her family went over to see the home. Arnold, her husband, owned a construction company. And after he saw it, he saw the great potential that it could happen, that could have with the house. So he was pretty excited. The two daughters of the couple were not really excited. Here was this big old creepy home that their family wanted them to move into. They just didn't feel comfortable with it, but they're 9 and 10, so they didn't really have a say. And in 1969, the recently married Arnold and Ginger Henshaw purchased the home and moved in with their 9 and 10-year-old daughters. Now, kudos to Ginger because when she bought it, she was only 31 years old. Now, yes... Her husband owned a construction company, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily had the skills to do the work. They would have probably had to do a lot of it on their own in addition to hiring people. So kudos to her for being able to A, afford it, and B, be able to take on such a big project. There are a lot of reports that I read through popular belief saying that the Henshaws had six kids, but I went through all the ancestry records I watched a documentary on the family, and only reports I could find is the two daughters of Ginger. Now, I'll get in a little bit more about Arnold, but I couldn't find anything about him having any other kids, so we're just going to go with they had the two daughters. Arnold was their stepdad. He wasn't their original father, but he was reported to be a loving and doting husband and father towards the family. Once they moved into the home, it really took them a long time to find contractors who would work on the home. Apparently, no one wanted to enter the home as it was known to be haunted. Uh, and it was also said that when they found workers, the workers just wouldn't stay long as contractors would report tools being moved. They'd see apparitions. They'd hear voices on and on and on. And then the Hinshaws really started to experience things early on. They have so many reports, so bear with me. The first thing is the family reported hearing voices. 
And a lot of times they would hear voices coming from a specific room in the house, but when they went to investigate the room, it would just stop as soon as they entered the room. There was also cold spots and gusts of wind that would be felt through various rooms, though there was no reason why this would happen. There was no doors or windows open, no vents that would be blowing the air, so they really couldn't explain that. There was also the ghost of a woman that was seen floating past the French doors off the dining room. This became such a common occurrence that the family actually nicknamed her Matilda and apparently would see her every evening as they sat down for dinner. I might be a little freaked out, but I guess after a time you kind of just get used to it. The family also reported feeling watched or followed. They'd see shadows. They just never really felt alone in their home. Furniture was also said to move. For example, Miss Hinshaw Ginger, she was in the dining room working on some paint swatches. and She had some of her paint swatches sitting on the one dining room chair. She picked up her paint swatches to look them over against the dining room wall, and when she turned around to put them back, the chair was moved all the way across the other side of the room. Though there had been no one in the area, there had been no sounds of this happening, nothing. And this was apparently a common occurrence at the home. Another occurrence is their water heater, pump, things like that would just stop working for no reason. They would call a serviceman, but before he could even come out, things would start working again. I probably wouldn't necessarily chalk this up to paranormal occurrences, but I guess with everything else going in the house, they probably attributed everything to that. Windows actually would often open and close on their own, and eventually it got so bad that Arnold actually ended up nailing some of the windows shut. Another report with Arnold is he was heading out to go to work, and he ran out to his car, but when he went to go to his car, it actually randomly just caught on fire. The car had not been started or anything. It had been sitting out all night. I don't know if it burst into flames, if it was just smoking or what. It was just said that it caught on fire. One of the creepiest occurrences that was found in the home is the family was doing some work when one of the young daughters crawled behind a wall and came in contact with a human skull that still had black hair attached to it. I'd probably be pretty freaked out, but again, they see Matilda every day and they're hanging out with ghosts, so maybe not as creepy to them. Ginger at this point became almost obsessed with the house and redoing the home. She would spend hours on one paint swatch trying to get an exact color match. And then Arnold was on the opposite spectrum of this. He was usually kind of a go-getter kind of guy. And after moving into the house, he just seemed to be spiraling into a darker mindset. He began losing interest in working on the home. He would start a project and then leave it halfway through. He also began just kind of wandering through the home. He would stare out of windows for hours on end, speaking to himself. And he became really just snappy. The children 
anything they did, he would snap at them. He began to even blame them for opening and closing the windows, things like that. But what really puts you into how dark his mind got is the story of the kid's pet raccoon. For those of you who don't want to hear about animal cruelty, I would fast forward about a minute through this. What happened with the pet raccoon is it somehow got out of the house. And Arnold was very, very furious with the kids. So what did he do? He forced the children out into the woods at night and told them they could not come back home until they located the pet raccoon. I don't know about you, but I would definitely not be forcing my two young children into the woods at night when there could be wild animals out there, creepy people. I don't know, but apparently he wasn't worried about it. And Ginger, I don't know why, wouldn't stand up for this, but regardless, luckily for them, the kids made it back safe and sound, as did the raccoon. But Arnold was not okay with this still. And he determined that the children needed punished so that they would not do things like that again. And what better way for them not to do that again than to kill their pet raccoon? Yes, he killed the raccoon. Now, remember, he was the loving husband, the loving father. This was not normal for him. At this point, the kids reported in the documentary that they felt like he just hated them and Ginger. But Ginger kept trying to maintain a semblance of normalcy in their life, and she ended up inviting some friends over. They were having drinks and some appetizers in the living room, and she left to go to the kitchen to get some refills. And when she was in the kitchen, she heard her friends scream. When she entered the living room, they had fled out of the house, and when she asked them, they said that they had seen an apparition and would never enter that house again. The family knew of what was going on in the house, but this was the first time it really got real for them. This was the first time people outside of the family really had seen anything, so it kind of freaked Ginger out. But it kind of gets worse from there, if not better, of course. The next part involves the family organ. Before they had moved into the home, they had purchased this organ and brought it with them. And the family would a lot of times sit around the organ, Arnold would play. It was great at first. But then Arnold became obsessed with the organ. And he would play it all throughout the night at all hours while everyone is trying to sleep. So Ginger, of course, tries to get Arnold to stop so that they can all have some sleep. And he just kind of ignores her for the most part until he finally tells her the organ is the only thing he enjoys anymore. And he tells her that the demons in his head have told him he has to do it and it's the only thing that will appease them and make them leave everyone alone. This is kind of the spiral end for the family. Eventually, Arnold starts sleeping throughout the day because yeah, he's playing an organ all night, and this causes him to lose his company. He was the only one working in the family, so this left the family with the inability to pay their bills. Their utilities got shut off, so they had no heat and so forth, and this was wintertime in Wisconsin, which is cold. And it was reported 
or ginger that they actually started burning some of the family furniture just to stay warm. And this is the, be the end for Ginger. She is done. And you can't blame her. She goes to a neighbor's house, because remember the utilities are off, so she doesn't have a phone. And she calls her dad, Raymond Bober, from the neighbor's house and says, Please, Dad, you need to pick me and the kids up. We can't live here anymore. So her dad comes and picks her up. And Ginger and the kids tell her parents all that had happened in the house. And... Ginger and the kids told him and his wife that they attributed Arnold's change in demeanor and everything to some evil entity in the home. Now, per Ginger's account in the documentary that they made, after they left the house, they never heard from Arnold again. Though, if you look at the reports, it states that he had a mental breakdown and that he had to be institutionalized, and that Ginger herself attempted and contemplated suicide. Which of these is correct? I can't say. And you will see why in just a second. The family, all of these reports, happened in a period of only six months. Six months, yeah. You might wonder whatever happened to the family, Ginger ended up remarrying, and she moved to Idaho eventually, where she currently still resides. As for Arnold, I have no idea. I could not find anything for this man other than all the sensationalized stories. I couldn't find any birth or death records for him. I couldn't find marriage certificates for him and Ginger. I could not find anything in Ancestry. I could not find anything resulting with his construction company, with him being institutionalized. Absolutely nothing, which in this day and age is pretty tough. So unfortunately, I'm sorry, but I have no other information on Arnold. After the Hinshaws left, Mrs. Kiefer acquired the property again. She eventually sold the home a few times, but people kept defaulting on their payments and Keeper would get ownership again. So after a couple years of this, who better to buy this home than Ginger's parents, Raymond and his wife, Marie? They purchased it from the Kiefers and their daughter Ginger was like, you have got to be kidding me. She was trying to convince him not to purchase it, but he didn't believe the house was actually haunted. He was skeptical and just thought that his daughter and their two grandchildren were just kind of making a bigger deal about the house than was warranted. So he purchased it and he wanted to turn it into an inn and a restaurant. He had experience with this because in Illinois, he had run not only an antique store, but also a restaurant and a pancake house. So Bober and his son Raymond began restoring the home. I'm going to refer to the two separately because their names are both Raymond Bober. So I'm going to refer to the father as Bober and the son as just the son. So as not to confuse either of the two. Immediately upon working in the home, Bober and the contractors and the son would report 
their tools would be moved or misplaced throughout the house. Also, oddly enough, is they would take pictures of the various rooms. Now, when Ginger had moved out, she had taken everything. She had taken the curtains down, everything. But when they took pictures of the empty rooms, things would show up in the images that weren't actually there, such as the original curtains, rugs, things like that. And the oddest occurrence is they would report that the rooms would shift in size and shape on a daily basis. The blueprints would show one size, but then when they measured it, it would be half or even double the size. But they continued working on the home until Bober's son experienced an event that caused him to never want to re-enter the home again. Now what happened is he was in the house working on his own when he heard someone call his name. He couldn't find anybody, so he just kept kind of puttering around doing his thing. But then he heard two gunshots in the house. And he couldn't tell if they were in the house or if they were outside, so he immediately started to kind of see what was going on. When he got to the kitchen, he noticed that he could smell gunpowder and he saw kind of like a smoke haze in the kitchen. He investigated, he didn't see anybody, and then he noticed that there was two bullet holes in the basement door, but they didn't look fresh, they looked old, so he was confused, and then he saw an apparition, and he was like, oh heck no, I'm out, and he flees the home, he's done. So after the events, Bober and his family decide it's time to abandon the home again. So they leave the house, it sits empty, and in 1979, Raymond Bober published a book, and he did that under the pseudonym of Wolfgang von Bober. Yeah, sounds pretty real or something, I don't know. And he titled it The Carver Effect, A Paranormal Experience. In the book, Bober addresses a lot of the occurrences that happened at the Lamont Mansion. He named a man named Jonathan Carver, who was an explorer in the 1700s, as the primary ghost that was living at the house and haunting it. In the book, he doesn't call it the Lamont Mansion, he calls the property Summerwind, and explains that the house itself has supernatural abilities. Covering some of the things that I mentioned earlier, he said the room sizes would shift, Pictures would show things that weren't there, things like that. Life magazine came in contact with the book and the story about Lamont Mansion, and they published an article on it, along with some other haunted houses that were said to be haunted. And in the Life magazine article, they also called the property Summerwind. And from that time on, after the book and the article, the property was no longer known as Lamont Mansion, but it became known as Summerwind. Up until 1986, the property remained abandoned and derelict. And then in 1986, the property was bought by a man named Harold Tracy, and he bought it as a wedding anniversary gift for his wife, Babs, which was very sweet. I can't imagine anybody buying a house for me. But it was not meant to be. In June of 1988, not too long after the husband had bought it, the mansion actually caught on fire. 
and it was said to have caught on fire after being the victim of a lightning strike. Arson wasn't suspected, but it was also not ruled out in the fire, and many feel that lightning strike is not the actual cause. The most common conception about it is people feel that the town officials burnt the mansion down to the ground because they wanted to be rid of it. And why that is, is it had been abandoned again, remember, for many years, and teens were apparently using it as a home base for partying, drugs, drinking, all that. And people were staying there to carry out vandalism, scope out to burglarize nearby homes, things like that. I don't foresee that as being the case. It was private property. This family had bought it and was looking to restore it, things like that. I can't imagine the town wanting to burn it down when it was going to be revamped by this couple. Now, there are very many other conspiracy theories about what happened to the mansion, but this is not a conspiracy theory podcast, so I'm going to leave it to the fact that it was a lightning strike. Unfortunately, during the lightning strike, it burnt to the ground, and the only thing left of the original mansion is part of the foundation is still there and you can see two of the main chimneys are still currently there as well. Now the current reports of what is going on at the mansion today is mostly what I could find through newspaper articles that were published and what they'll say um, is the newspaper articles were from 2014 and per the reports it is currently still owned by the couple named Harold and Bab Tracy. It is privately owned by them, so it is not open to the public. You can't just traipse around on their property. Again, per the articles, is the Tracys acquired the home to restore it, as they had apparently always wanted a historic home on West Bay Lake. The problem was, after the lightning strike, is the family could no longer afford to restore the mansion, as, again, a whole lot did not remain. And it's one thing to restore a home partially, it's another thing to go from the ground up. This is where a man named Craig Nehring comes into the picture, and he's the founder of the Fox Valley Ghost Hunters. Prior to him getting involved with the Tracys, he had investigated the area for paranormal activity for years, and he had claimed to capture many EVP sessions, strange feelings, things like that. He's also the one who actually acquired the blueprints from Mr. Bober to have the home rebuilt. Craig and some other investigators started a campaign in 2014 to raise funds to restore the Summerwind Mansion to its former glory. And they wanted to raise $500,000 through donations, media blitzes, and a lot through campouts at the place. They would kind of host paranormal sessions and you could pay to become part of that. There was another group in addition to the ghost hunting group called the Summerwind Restoration Society. And they were working to raise funds for the project as well. Uh, and Craig Nehring was also part of this group. And they wanted to rebuild it to its former glory. And there was also reports in the newspaper articles that it was going to be a haunted bed and breakfast. So 
I don't know if the family wanted to live there, if they wanted a bed and breakfast, or a haunted bed and breakfast. There was all three reports. I don't have any other information on the donation project. There is no updates on the donation page. The GoFundMe is page has gone down and it had only had $40 that had been donated. And the only other odd thing I could find is per property records, the taxes are being paid by a man named William and a woman named Anna. Both have the last name Sheely and they live in Illinois. Now these records go as far back as 2011, so they predate the articles that were posted saying that Harold and Babs Tracy own the property. They couldn't go any further back. It is zoned as a general business property and is valued at $215,000 for the land. But as far as who owns it, William and Anna or Harold and Tracy, I do not know. Regardless, after all this, I do want to get into the story of the hauntings and kind of give you the facts behind all the reports. And where I'm going to start is where the hauntings all started, is the reports from the Lamonts. Now remember, the Lamonts stayed here for 15 years, and nothing was reported other than from the servants saying they saw the lady in white, things like that. But all the collaborations of this, and as well as the shooting, is all historical legends passed down from hearsay. There's no collaborations from the Lamonts in writing, nothing from them at all. No one can even tell you where the story came from. So, to be fair, he was a major political figure for a couple years, working with President Hoover he was a bigwig in all of his companies, so I could see him not wanting people to think he believed in ghosts and things like that. Now, I'm going to cover the facts on the shooting at the Lamont Mansion. There are photos of the bullet holes in the door. I will include those on social media, though the door mysteriously went missing. So, I can't say for sure that these bullet holes are from the door at the Lamont Mansion. It could just be a random door. There's no proof either way. The other thing that really gets me about the shooting is they're all sitting down eating dinner, and Mr. Lamont happens to have a gun handy in his kitchen. Remember at this time, this was long ago, people didn't even really lock their doors, crime wasn't as much as it is now, and he just has a gun hanging out in his kitchen. I could see in the bedroom, things like that. But regardless, we'll go with the fact that he had a gun randomly in his kitchen. Now, Mr. Lamont had been hearing reports for years from his servants. Say, and maybe he did see a figure coming up from the basement and shot at it before seeing that it maybe actually was a person. And maybe it was one of his servants. And he was, again, a bigwig. Maybe he didn't want it getting out. And maybe this servant is the skull with the black hair that was found by the Henshaws all those years later. And maybe what Ginger's brother saw was a residual haunting event in the kitchen. I don't know. But my thought is he probably wouldn't have a gun and it probably didn't happen. 
And that is further put into perspective by, if we go by the timeline of the Lamonts fleeing the house after this event. So they lived here, it said, for 15 years. If they moved in in 1918, that would put them leaving at 1932 to 1933. So if we go by the family timeline from 1897 to 1929, Mr. Lamont worked for the American Steel Foundries Company. He was actually even president of the company for a while, and this was a Chicago-based company. So this was about a six-hour car ride, probably a little less by train, to get to the Lamont Mansion. But then in 1929 to 1932, he worked as the Secretary of Commerce, which made the family move to D.C. This was a 16-hour car ride from the Lamont Mansion. And this is about the time when he would have fled from the house. He then resigned from Secretary of Commerce and worked for the American Iron and Steel Institute from 1932 to 1934. This was located in Massachusetts, which was again a 16-hour car ride from the Lamont Mansion. So around the time the family fled is when he would have left the area for D.C., and he didn't return to Chicago for at least, at least over five years. And possibly, maybe they didn't sell the property because they thought they would return shortly. And then by the time they wanted to go back, it was in such bad shape that they couldn't use it. Also, he was good at commerce and investment. Maybe he thought holding on to it would be a good idea. But regardless, I don't think the family fled. I don't think the shooting happened. I think it was just a matter of the family didn't use the property anymore because it wasn't convenient. As far as the Kiefer's not wanting to go in and selling the home pretty quickly, is it was said that the Kiefer's, Mrs. Kiefer's husband died unexpectedly, so she was not able to continue restoring the home and wanted to sell it. I couldn't 100% verify that one, but that is just the main story I was able to see with that. As far as the skull that was found by the Hinshaws, there are many, many reports of how this happened. There's many reports of the children found it, Ginger found it, her husband found it. It was found in various places in the home. There's even reports that it wasn't just the skull, but also part of a full skeleton. The other thing weird about this report is not only did the family not report it, but the skull just magically disappeared. And this happened in 1969 to 1970. So you would think, A, the family would call the police. B, they would take pictures of this said skull and so forth. But the family didn't do any of that. And the reason they say that is because they said they felt everyone who would have been involved with the murder or anything at that point would have been already deceased, so it didn't matter. Um, yeah, no. That's no. 
I feel like the skull did not exist. I can't imagine you not reporting this or feeling like nobody would care that their dead family member was buried in your wall. The next occurrence is the car on fire. Again, there is no picture evidence of this. Why would you not take a picture of that? But regardless, let's go that it caught on fire, whatever. Then there's Bober's son account in the kitchen. This is based on hearsay, of course, but it also could be that he had heard the reports of the retold legends over and over again, so maybe he kind of thought he saw something, or it could have been a residual haunting replay of such a big event happening in the home. With the rooms changing sizes, this could be a simple discrepancy between blueprints and room measurements, not unheard of. Also, at that time, things were never built square, so someone could have measured one side of the room and then the other and then be very off by even a couple inches. So that's not too crazy, and I'm sure over time, you know how things get exaggerated. As far as the room pictures, having items in the room that were not there, such as the original curtains, things like that, where... Where are the pictures of this evidence? Mr. Bober wrote a book trying to prove that this haunting stuff happened, and he didn't keep the pictures that would prove it? It just seems way off with that. That really gets me. As far as the appliances stopping working, I mean, it was an old house. I'm sure things were not reliable, so I'm not giving any credence to that one. One of my explanations is what could have happened with Arnold is remember Ginger and Arnold were said to have been recently married. Again, no marriage certificate, so I can't tell for sure. But it could have been a case where Arnold was kind of a little mentally unstable to begin with, but he was able to hide it. But then you add on the pressure of renovating a big, large house. He's running his own business. He's trying to raise two new children and a new wife. So all of this could have just been a little too much for one person, and he just cracked under all the pressure. The next thing I want to cover is Jonathan Carver. He's the one, if you remember, that Mr. Bober said is the main haunt of Summerwind. He did explore... Um, Wisconsin in the mid to late 1760s. Afterwards, after he'd explored, he traveled back to England where he lived until he died in 1780. Mr. Bober claims that he haunts here due to a land grant that was given to him for the area. And why he said that this was given to him is because there was two indigenous tribes that were in the area and they were having some issues. And Mr. Carver was able to resolve those issues and get them to be peaceful. And to thank him, they gave him a deed for the land that was where Summerwind was. Also per Bober, is the deed was buried in the foundation of the home. And that is why Mr. Carver is haunting the area. And how, you may ask, does he know this? Well, 
He used Ouija boards to give him some answers. And his daughter, Ginger, put him under hypnosis, and he wrote the name Jonathan Carver as the ghost. Now, a little debunking on this is even if he had negotiated the two indigenous tribes to have a peace deal, he wouldn't have had a valid claim to the land because with English law, it was actually not allowed for them to exchange land with the indigenous people. Also, as far as the deed being buried in the foundation, is during investigations, the foundation pourer was actually found, and he said, well, yeah, I poured the foundation, and of course, there was no documents there. And the home was built over 130 years after Carver is said to have been in the area, so why would the deed be in the foundation? And lastly, he never made it as far north as Lando Lakes, Wisconsin, so the whole Jonathan Carver thing makes absolutely no sense. And last thing is paranormal claims did not come about until after Bober published his book. The Hinshaws didn't really recount their experiences. Nothing came about until after the book and the Life magazine article. Let's put into perspective a little further is, of course, a lot of people go back to this, but the Exorcist movie came out in 1973. The book came out in 1979. It isn't out of the realm of possibility is that these people were really taking advantage of the whirlwind of people just being so interested in the paranormal. It just skyrocketed. So many things came out after that point. That includes things like the Amityville Horror House. All of that kind of happened right after the Exorcist movie. It was also reported that Mr. Bober was trying to get various licenses for using the Summerwind Mansion for different business purposes, but they always got turned down, which could be partly the reason why he left the home and not because it was haunted. Neighbors also report no haunting complaints until after the article and the book. They report that the only hauntings are the people who are reportedly traipsing on the land and really just causing a ruckus. So my personal opinion is that this home is either been wildly exaggerated or fully made up. And I'm really leaning towards the fully made up aspect of this. It sounds really like it's a publicity stunt, to be honest. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to include on social media some of the pictures, including like the bullet holes on the doors, things like that. I'm also going to show the aerial view photo of the property from Google Maps so you can see what's left of the property from up above as well. I will not include the coordinates for where the home is because I feel like these people have enough people traipsing around on the property. They don't need any more of us. So if you check out social media, you can see some of those things. I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the place is haunted or not. 
I'd love to hear any of your personal experiences, proof you may have, or any other facts, especially if you can provide me any information on Arnold Hinshaw. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and suggestions you might have for future episodes. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in, and don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready to roll and what it'll be about. Also, follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode, including those pictures and links that I told you about. You can follow me on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can email at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and I'll catch you next Wednesday.